Now let's continue our exposition of the book of Ephesians and we come to verses 20 through 32 or so in the fourth chapter. Last week we focused on verses 17 through 24, but we need to take into consideration uh, some additional comments about some of these verses before moving into the next section. I might actually read into the fifth chapter this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's begin reading at verse 17 so we see the entirety of the context again. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit upon the page of Holy Scripture that is given to us without error by divine inspiration and ask that you will use it in the hearts of all here to accomplish your sovereign will and purpose. We earnestly pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, let's begin reading at verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. And have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now, in this passage, the Apostle Paul is concerned to tell us how to live. And you will recall that last week we saw that the entirety of the theme is how we are to walk. So the first three chapters have told us who Christ is, what he has done, and now the Apostle Paul applies that to Christian living and tells us how we are to live. 
We are fallen, he tells us, in need of recreation. And he pointed in verses 17 and following to the futility of our thinking, thinking, darkened understanding and alienation from the life of God, sinful, sinful and willful ignorance and hardness of heart. Then the Apostle Paul speaks of the image that is restored, that when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, there is the beginning of the restoration of the image of God that was lost in the fall. The putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new is the way in which he describes that recreation. So let's take it from there. I think it's essential that we begin there in order to understand the applications that will be given to us by Paul of these themes. So the first point that we want to see is, in union with Christ, in union with Christ, we have put off the old man and we have put on the new. Now putting off the old man and putting on the new which is Paul's clothing metaphor that he uses here, is something definitive. If you go to Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says the same thing in different language. He speaks of our having died with Christ and having been raised with Him to newness of life. So in conversion you actually participate in Jesus' finished work. But whether Romans 6 or here, he's speaking of the same truth. Now John Murray's translation of this passage brings out well the definitive aspect of sanctification that I think is missing in most English translations. Here's Murray's translation. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, so that You have put off, according to your former manner of life, the old man who is corrupted according to the lusts of deceit, and are being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and have put on the new man who is after God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now that's a good translation of the Greek text, and I think Professor Murray's translation is extremely helpful so that we see that there's something definitive Something that's actually taken place once for all that Paul is speaking of as the basis of our Christian living. You have put off the old man and you have put on the new man in your union with Christ's death and resurrection. Putting off and putting on are done once for all. Renewal in the spirit of your mind, however, also referenced by Paul, is progressive. So this continual renewal, understanding how this applies to life, is something that will be for a lifetime, but you died and rose in him once for all. You have put off the old man and put on the new man once for all. Paul's point is, because you have put off and put on, in practice therefore, put off habits which contradict your newness in Christ. Be what you are in your union with Christ. So keeping your finger here, turn to Colossians, the third chapter, just over a few pages. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, and see how Paul says the same thing uh, in a different way in Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Now notice how he puts it. 
Colossians 3 verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So you see you're not old and new at the same time. If you're in Christ, the old has been put off, the new has been put on. You are new in Christ, but you are not new men and women made perfect. That's where the renewing of your minds comes in, which is constant and ongoing. So what does this mean? It means that redemption in Christ results in a changed life. There is no one who is redeemed by Christ whose life is not being changed by the powerful work of the Spirit of God. Therefore, Paul's point is that when Christians sin, we contradict who we are. It's a contradiction of who we are in union with Christ when we sin. You are in union with Christ, you are new in Him, you died with Him, you rose with Him, you put off the old, you put on the new. Paul's ethic, therefore, is be who you are in Christ. And what you are as a Christian is determined by who Christ is. And He died once for all, and He rose to newness of life. That's who you are, fundamentally. And so to sum up what Paul is teaching here, because you have died to sin, do not let sin reign in you. Because you have been raised in Christ, walk in newness of life. Because you have put off the old and have put off the, on the new, then put off those things that contradict your newness in Christ. Put off in your lives whatever is consistent with the old and put on whatever is consistent with the new. Now try and understand this. Paul's concern for Christian conduct is inseparably related to the themes of his preaching, as we have seen in the first three chapters of Ephesians. In particular, his preaching of union with Christ. Now can you get this? To say that the imperative is based upon the indicative is not quite right. For Paul, the imperative is not just the result of the indicative. The imperative is integral to the indicative. To put it another way, obedience is not just the implication of new life in Christ. Obedience is the environment of new life in Christ. Obedience is constitutive of new life in Christ. And so what God is doing in your life as new men and women, but not new men and women made yet morally perfect, is helping you to see that the new environment of your life is that of obedience to the word of the Lord. Now that being the case, you have put off the old, you have put on the new, and this is fundamental to Paul's thinking, just absolutely indispensable to Paul's thinking, to his theology. Since this is true, then it leads to a second point. This is the second thing. Newness in Christ shows in practical ways. Paul is not theoretical here, but it shows in practical ways. Paul's focus here is on how we communicate with one another in these verses. Now, I would say that's a practical thing, wouldn't you? How we talk with one another, how we communicate one with another. Our fallen tongues, new in Christ... We're called to use them in a new way. Have you put off the old? Have you put on the new? Then it should show in the way in which you talk, in the way in which you communicate. Using the language of Romans 6, you have died with Christ? Then kill communication that is inconsistent with union in his death. Are you raised in Christ? 
Then communicate with one another in language that is consistent with resurrection living. Now that's eminently practical, I say, and I hope you agree. So Paul gives a list of put-offs and put-ons that are consistent with your new walk in Christ. Having put off, this is what you must put on. Here's Paul's list of contrasts. Here they are. Verse 25, he says, In Christ, having put off falsehood, put on truth. You see it here. Verse 25, Therefore, having put off, put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now this is explicit. Some of these put-offs and put-ons are more implicit, but this is explicit. He argues that we are members of one another. How then can we lie to one another? How can we be false to one another? Are you trying to deceive a fellow believer or anyone for that matter? We are called to be true in everything as believers. In our businesses, we are called to be truthful. In our relationships, we are called to be truthful. Truth is an attribute of God to which our lives are to conform. So in Christ, having put off falsehood, put on truth. The next contrast is found in verse 26. Having put off sinful anger, put on anger that is not sinful. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And again in verse 31 he says that you're to put away bitterness and wrath and he tells us to put away sinful anger. Now sometimes it is wrong not to be angry. The Lord Jesus Christ drove the money changers out of the temple in absolute purity of heart. Righteous anger takes self out of the way. Righteous anger seeks the glory of God and triumph over sin. Now in verse 26, the apostle is quoting the fourth psalm, verse 4, Psalm 4, 4. Let me read that verse to you. Be angry and do not sin, says the psalmist, just what Paul says. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So the psalmist, when he was fleeing from Absalom, his son, would have a quiet heart before going to bed. And if we do not go into God's presence and deal with our sinful anger, verse 27 says, we give place to the devil. You're giving him a foothold in your life when you allow anger to build up and fester in your hearts. The next contrast is found in verse 28. Having said that we are to put off sinful anger, you know, bitterness, malice. By the way, are you doing that? Is malice in your heart? Having done that, he uses another, another contrast in verse 28. Having put off stealing, put on sharing. So he says in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Internal honesty from the heart that comes from a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is what he's speaking of. I knew of a minister once who would once a week pick up his laundry at the laundromat. He would talk with the guy over the counter and, and he would play with the pins on the, on the uh, counter. And uh, then he would put one in his lapel. After a while, having done that through the weeks, he had quite a collection of pins. One day the Lord convicting, convicted him, those belong to that business, not to you. He took them all back and said, I'm a Christian and I've sinned against you. 
I think we should have sensitive consciences like that. I really do. I think that's right. I think that's proper. Having put off stealing, put on sharing. The Christian employee should be the most, the most trustworthy person in the business. And when we fail, we should confess it. And we should make it right. Well, having put off the, the, the stealing and put on sharing, the next contrast is found in verse 29. Having put off corrupt speech, put on edifying words. You see it in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Having put off corrupt speech, put on edifying words. Why not be the kind of person who, when people have been with you for a while, walk away and say, you know, I was directed to Jesus Christ in that conversation. I was directed to the blood. I was directed to the resurrection. I was directed to holiness of life in that conversation. You know, the way that person talks builds me up and edifies me. That's what Paul is saying. Well, there's another contrast found in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, but by implication, rather bring him delight. Verse 30, look at it. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The context, of course, is how we speak with one another. And the implication is this, that if we do not communicate with one another in a Christ-like way, then we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a very serious matter, that a Christian can grieve the Holy Spirit. Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door a year or two back. And, of course, they're keen to deny the deity of Christ. They're keen to deny the biblical truth of the Trinity. And, young people, the Trinity is just absolutely essential to the Christian faith. Absolutely essential. And so I was talking with these, uh, these people, and they were telling me that the Holy Spirit was an impersonal force. I said, how do you grieve an impersonal force? Grieve not the Holy Spirit, with whom you're sealed for the day of redemption. Good question, he said. Yeah, a pretty important one, isn't it? The Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity, and he can be grieved, and he can be grieved by the way in which we communicate with one another in the church, in our homes, in our friendships, in our relationships. Well, there's another contrast, really, in verses 31 of chapter 4 all the way through chapter 5, verse 2, having put off bitterness, put on love. Let's look at it, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That's what is put off. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And the basis of it, all, of it all is, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, these are the contrasts that the Apostle Paul brings. You have put off, you have put on, therefore, put off, put on. You have died with Christ, you have been raised with Christ, therefore live in a way that is consistent with what he did when he shed his blood for you and rose from the dead for you, and you are in union with him. Now most of these have to do with how we speak with one another, concern with how we relate to one another, 
So do you see a need for a change to the glory of God in your speech? In light of what Paul says here, do you see a need to change the way in which you communicate with your spouse, your son, your daughter, your friends, your fellow church members? Do you see a a need for your speech to change? Or in some other way, do you see that you need to put off what is inconsistent with the new life in Christ and to put on those things that are consistent with your new life in Christ? Do you see it? If so, then do it by the grace of God. Which leads me to the third thing. I really want us to see how these apply very specifically to how we communicate with one another. So here's the third point. The third point is this. How to have a fight with your wife. Or with your child, or with your friend, or with your fellow church member, how to have a fight with your wife. Is there a biblical way for us to deal with difficult things, a biblical way for us to deal with with issues that are confrontational? Well, sure there is. Paul just told us. Haven't I told you before? The Bible is an eminently practical book. And so he tells us how to communicate with one another in our homes, in our marriages, in our lives. Some of you young people that are going to marry, listen up. Now let's take all of this and apply it. We're through with the days of treating the Bible as trivial and merely paying lip service. We're believers and we're going to take it seriously. The Bible, this very practical book, shows us how to speak. Right there in our homes and relationships... You know that you're taking the Bible seriously when you apply it to your marriages and your relationships and your children and with others. Children can learn this. You Christian children, you can learn this. Children can be very cruel to one another, but there's no place for that among Christian children, is there? You know, when I was a boy in Sunday school, there was a a fellow that came whose name was Earl. Earl was different than most of the guys in the class. Uh, He didn't have what some of the others had. Um, He, uh, I think he was a very bright young man, but he was quiet and reserved, didn't have many friends. Perfect opportunity just to show love, just to show love. And I remember the other boys in the class blowing pepper in his eyes from the pepper shaker that was in the kitchen. I remember them being absolutely cruel to this boy who ended up joining a cult because in the cult he was well received. I was a new Christian and I knew righteous anger. That shouldn't happen at whatever age. So how to have a fight with your wife. Now what I'm saying here is not altogether original with me. I'm sure that over 30 years ago I picked it up from John Bettler at CCEF. But I'm sure John wouldn't mind if I used some of his language. Well here's how you do it. With this text in mind, here is how to communicate with your wife, how to have a fight with your wife. The first thing is stop lying and start telling the truth. Stop lying and start telling the truth. Where do we get that? Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, in this case your wife, your husband, your child, for we are members of one another. 
No relationship can thrive or fail to be damaged when it is not based on the truth. Now, I'm not saying you have to be brutal. Matter of fact, you shouldn't be brutal. So, guys, your wife says, what do, you, do you like my dress? And you really don't. Honey, if you like your dress, that's all that matters to me. Well, that won't satisfy. Yeah, but I want to know, do you like my dress? Well, sweetheart, there may be another style or color that, because you are so beautiful to me, would be more flattering. (laughs) You know, one of the worst things we can teach our children is what people call the little white lie. You know what I'm talking about. Someone calls and says, oh, is your husband home? And you say, oh, no, he's not home. He's right there in front of you, and your children are there to see it. That's wrong. That's not being truthful. That's not walking consistently with what the Holy Spirit teaches us in Christ. Have you in your marriage, or whatever your relationship may be, have you stopped being truthful? And all this is festering up and building up because you're just not truthful. You can't deal with things if you don't put all the cards on the table. Jay Adams tells the story, and I'll use a couple of his illustrations of a missionary couple that came home. The wife was so deeply depressed, he had to put a pause to the work, came home. And when they were sitting with their minister, finally the truth came out after all of those years. When this woman married her husband, she said, I I really didn't love you, and I've never loved you. That was truth. It hurt, but it had to be said. It had to be dealt with. Then, do you know what happened? They began to love one another biblically, and they are on the field loving one another and loving others. If you don't speak the truth, then you cannot have a godly relationship. So stop lying and start telling the truth. The second thing to keep in mind in how to have a fight with your wife is to keep current. Keep current. That is, stay with the issue that's right before you. Keep current. Verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, having mentioned Dr. Adams, I remember his saying years ago that a couple came to him with marriage issues. The lady came with one of these long legal pads. You know the one I'm talking about? It was double-columned front and back, all the things that the husband had did wrong to her over all the years. Now that's just wrong. He had to say, yeah, I've done all those things. Of course, he didn't keep a list that might have been equally long. She kept a list of wrongs. All these bad things. When there is forgiveness through Christ then learn to forgive and labor to forget. And when you're dealing with an issue, don't bring up the irrelevant past. It's already been forgiven. Turn, keep your finger, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that very familiar passage in which the Apostle Paul is speaking about love. How often do you read these things and you think it's some kind of ethereal idea has no application to your life? Man, this applies to how you live with your spouse. 
1 Corinthians 13, 8 and following, or 4 and following. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Or as one of the translations puts it, love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Stop lying, start telling the truth, keep current. The third thing to remember in how to have an argument with your wife is assault the issue and not your spouse. Assault the issue and not your son or daughter. Assault the issue and not your friend. Assault the issue and not your spouse. Verses 29 through 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Which tells us there is no room for cutting remarks. And it is especially childish of us men to use cutting remarks toward our wives when the Bible calls us to nurture our wives after the pattern of Christ's love and sacrifice and nurture of us. As far as anger is concerned, blowing up is wrong and clamming up is wrong. Both of these are wrong forms of communication. Blowing up, just blowing up. Look at all the things you've done through the years. Well, that's not Christ-like. Clamming up is wrong. What's wrong? Nothing. I know something's wrong. Nothing. What's wrong? Nothing. And then what happens? You go to bed angry when the text says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it before going to bed. In other words, deal with it quickly. And then proact, don't react Proact, don't react. Verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from among you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's, that's really important. You see, verse 31 would be reacting. Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, malice. Verse 32 would be proacting, being kind and tenderhearted and forgiving, all on the basis of the fact that you have been forgiven by Christ an infinite debt that you could never have paid. So maybe you have to say, I can't discuss this at the moment, honey, because if I do, I'm going to lose my temper. I can't trust how I'll respond, and I want to respond in a godly way. So let's do this. Let's both just have time alone for 40 minutes. Let's seek the Lord. Let's open the Word. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to teach our hearts. And then with a heart that's well prepared, we can come back and we can talk. Does that make sense? What's so hard about that? 
I think that's good pastoral counsel myself. Why not apply it? Every time you forgive in your marriage, you show the power of the cross and the resurrection. Do you know that? Every time you replace bad communication with Christ-likeness, you show the power of the cross. And that's the the point. The goal is to see the power of the age to come at work in your lives. Now, fourth point, fourth thing. I want from our text today, mainly from our text, to give you five principles of change. Five principles of change. Because some of you out there are not changing and you're very discouraged. I want to give you five principles for change. Now this can be a powerfully transforming sermon in your lives if you will take it to heart and determine to change by the grace of God. Let me stress the motive for change is the glory of God. Abraham Kuyper made this comment. Many well-meant efforts at so-called sanctification become sinful. For the man who applies himself earnestly and diligently to good works, solely to attain a holier status and thus become a holier person, has lost his reward. His end in view is not God but himself. And this wrongly planned sanctification causes self-exaltation and spiritual pride. So is in all things. The desire to be holy, the motive for it, even your plan to grow holier, must be the glory of God, or it becomes self-referential and works-oriented. Let me also stress that change is grounded in what Christ has done, and that's the point of 5.2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What Christ did for you determines how you live and how you change. So let me give you five principles for change. The first principle is if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, you can change. The Bible will not allow the true Christian to say, well, I'm just this way, I can't change. You live in a new environment, the Christian must change. To say, I cannot change, is to insult the cross. It is to say that Jesus doesn't make men free. You can change. The Christian must and is changing. Sin and holiness cannot peacefully cohabit in the Christian's heart. You can change. And take that as a word of hope if you've been struggling to change. You're not the same person anymore. Christ indwells you. The Spirit of God inhabits you. This this means that you can change and there's hope. Second principle is be Christ-centered rather than problem-centered. Be Christ-centered rather than problem-centered. Being Christ-centered rather than problem-centered will provide solutions to problems. Sometimes we focus on the problem. We talk it to death and almost seem to enjoy this miserable state. We talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. In this passage, the put-ons are all Christ-like qualities. We are to get out of ourselves and into Christ. There's no reason to go on three years talking about your problem. The Bible is clear about it. Begin to believe it. 
and to apply it. And how will it look when you are out of yourself and into Christ? Keep your finger here and turn to Romans chapter 15. I'll show you how it will look. When you're actually being obedient to Christ in a life that desires to change. Romans 15 verses 2 and 3 says, Romans 15, 2 and 3, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. You see how he always grounds it in Christ. Paul is no moralist. He always grounds it in Christ. Christ did not serve himself, but served another. So do you need to change in your marriage? Well, just fill in the blank in verse 2. Let, who whatever your name is, let you learn how to seek to, to please your husband or to please your wife, to live for his or her good with the goal of building him or her up. And if each of you will do that, if you are constantly concerned, man, to love your wife that way, and woman, you are constantly concerned as a wife to love your husband that way, then you're going to grow. You're going to change. So be Christ-centered rather than problem-centered. Third principle, you don't just stop a sinful habit, you replace it with a Christ-like alternative. Some of you are failing in change because you are desperately trying to stop doing something. When That's just not how it works. You don't just stop a bad, wrong, ungodly habit that gripped your life. You have to replace it with the right thing. And that's the whole point of what Paul says about communication. You replace sinful communication with godly communication. And it's taken years for that sinful communication to develop in your life. And it may take a long time for godly communication to develop in your life. But if you're conscious about it, Replacing, You know, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say this. I'm going to speak in a way that edifies and builds up, being conscious about it. Or to say, honey, will you forgive me? I sinned against you in the way I spoke. Let me phrase it differently, and I think this will better speak my heart. What I really meant, what I really want to mean, what I want my heart to really reflect is, so you replace the sinful with the right. I think really that may may be the point of verse 28. You see verse 28 here in Ephesians 4, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now I have been perplexed about that verse through the years. Let me tell you why. Here's a section that deals with communication, and all of a sudden he talks about stealing. And then it dawned on me one day, Paul is a preacher and he's giving an illustration. When is a thief not a thief? Well, you say, when he doesn't steal anymore, wrong. If a thief just stops stealing, he's still a thief in his heart. But when he begins to labor and to give to those who have need, then he's not a thief anymore. Now Paul says, you see that? Jay Adams, uh, somewhere years ago, I remember reading, used the little children's joke. When is a door not a door? When is a door not a door? When it is a jar. All right? It has to be something else. When is a thief not a thief? When he has a heart that wants to give. 
Now Paul says, you see how that works? All right, now you take that and you apply it in how you speak with one another, how you communicate with one another. You apply that in the church. You apply that in your marriage. You apply that in your relationships with your children and children with your parents and with your friends. Thomas Chalmers spoke of the expulsive power of a new affection. You get that? Some, all right, this young lady just loves this guy. She thinks he's the cat's meow or whatever you say nowadays. She just can't get a... The guy, she's, she's jilted. He walks away. He says, I don't want a relationship with you. She's heartbroken. And then this other guy comes along after maybe a few months. And she says, you know, that first guy wasn't the one for me after all. Why? Because she has a new affection. And the new affection expels the old one. That's how it is to work in the Christian life. The new affection is Christ, His truth, His word. And when that affection grips my heart, then affection for the old goes away. Does that make sense to you? The expulsive power of a new affection. Fourth principle discipline is required. Discipline is required to change. Discipline is required. You've been thinking in a certain way, acting in a certain way, speaking in a certain way, maybe for years. Yeah, the Lord can change it like that, but ordinarily the way he works is to progressively help you to replace the old with the new, the ungodly with the godly, and it requires discipline. I think that's just implicit in the text. It's just implicit. These pagans who have become Christians have been used to speaking in a certain way. And Paul says, now you have to learn a new way. He speaks of the renewing of the mind. It's a progressive kind of thing. So Paul says to Timothy, the young man of God, the young preacher, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Where do we have the impression that if you're a Christian, you no longer have to work? Right, we aren't saved by our works. We're saved only by the work of Christ. But when we come to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit produces, produces effort in our lives. How often do you see Paul saying that we are to fight the good fight of faith, that we are to run the race? That's effort, isn't it? Remember how the Apostle Paul puts it there in um, 2 Timothy Chapter 4, 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on the great day. So the Christian life means that the Spirit of God is in your life, it produces effort. Discipline is required. And then finally, the last principle that I want to give to you. The last principle of change is this, and this is a sermon all of its own. You will change when you know that God loves you. You will change when, you, when your heart is really gripped by the reality of what Christ did for you. How can I not change in the direction in which he wants me to change when I understand that the second person of the Trinity came into this world, assumed human nature, and shed his blood for me on the cross. Man, that's love. And when I know I'm loved, then I can love in turn. 
You tackle moral growth as a believer always remembering that judicial acceptance is done once for all. Accomplished by the cross once for all. As William Romaine put it, when guilt comes in, love goes out. And there's never been a person who is morally transformed by focusing on guilt. Now, guilt has an important part to play, but again, that's another sermon too. But guilt's been dealt with in the cross. You're loved, and that will help you change. So, we're about to come to the table of the Lord. And we will certainly have, in these moments to come, opportunity for you to once again examine your heart as we pray together. Does the text today and its exposition call upon you and me to repent? In Vespers the other night, I told on Wednesday evening, we have a service in the chapel every Wednesday evening, with rare exceptions. I told them of the Ugandan revival that happened in 1938. It was pervasive. Waller Tab tells me it still has influence in Uganda to this day. God the Holy Spirit so worked in the hearts of men and women that when they would greet one another in that revival, they would say, Brother, sister, have you repented of any sins today? Well, have you? You know, belief and faith and repentance toward Christ should be daily in the Christian's life. Daily. Brother, they would say, have you repented of any sins today? Brother, have you seen the cross today? So you take this to your homes, your marriages, your relationships, your children, your... I ask you, have you repented of any sins today? Have you seen the cross today? The power of the cross to change the heart. God's people said, Amen.